This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss George R.R. Martin's 1996 novel, A Game of Thrones. Did you know that this podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Game of Thrones? I guess so, kind of. Yeah? Do you know why? Because it's so formative for you? Well, that's definitely true. But so so let me let me explain the the steps here. Game of Thrones is the book that made me fall back in love with fantasy and fall back in love with genre fiction after I had sort of moved away from it when I was in college. And falling back in love with fantasy is what made me decide to go for my MFA and writing popular fiction from Seton Hill. I probably would not have done that had I not fallen back in love with genre fiction. And that MFA is the thing that led me to believe I had anything to say about a subject like this. Because, it, you know what I mean, I studied storytelling and stuff there. You know what I mean? Like Following those steps, if I had never gotten that MFA, I probably wouldn't have started this podcast with you. Therefore... This podcast wouldn't exist without Game of Thrones, even though we haven't covered it until up, up until now. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a behemoth to try to cover. But yeah. I mean, for for me, it's it's weird because tracking my lineage of things that I enjoyed growing up, this jumped me into like my grown up phase, kind yeah. of. All these fantasy things like tended to lean more um, like younger demographic for some people, and there were some like super dense fantasy books that I had read, and this was the bridging of those two things. I think there's a there's a huge reason why this is such a massive phenomenon. And like you said, like how massive it is is one of the reasons why we haven't covered it until now. We've sort of devised a method that we think is going to work, and that's one of the reasons why we decided to tackle it. Um, and then also because the final season's coming up, and, and we realize that if we don't cover it soon, we're not going to get a chance to cover it in a position of not knowing how it ends, at least, right? Or how the show ends. And I'm, I'm really enjoying getting, getting this experience again. I think this is my third time reading the book. I'm sure you've read it a few more times than that, right? No. So it's funny is I'm actually not much of a rereader of novels. Now, this one, I think I had read a second time through. And then I've definitely experienced it through the show many times. But I think this is my third time reading it. Um, And this podcast has sort of actually taught me to love rereading in a way that I didn't before the podcast. uh, Because I'm able to get certain things out of it. Um, And this definitely felt that way, uh, revisiting it here. But... So this novel is also really important to me on like a personal level beyond just my writing. Between my wife and I, we've had three dogs named after characters uh, from this show and and book. We met and bonded basically over Game of Thrones. Uh, It was one of the first things we talked about and shared that we both loved it. You know, in some ways it led to me, you know, marrying her and, and, and having the life I have now. Uh, I, I have so much, I mean, I just put, there's a taste of it on Instagram of like all the like shit I have (laughs) for all the swag and, you know, (laughs) things I have. It's on my alcohol on the shelf. It's, it's everywhere in my life. And it really, when I was thinking about it, it was kind of amazing to think about how much a story made up by George R. R. Martin has affected my life. Right. 
Um, and we've talked about this a little bit with, you know, Lord of the Rings and other like big monumental projects for us. But this is the one for me that that probably is the top spot. It's such a huge phenomenon that it's it's almost cliche to say, but it's genuinely my favorite TV show. You know, the books are incredible as well. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily my favorites, but I absolutely love them and I've re read through them multiple times. And something that I wanted to say right off the bat is rereading for the third time even. There are moments that are I just get chills. Yeah. Knowing what he's setting up and, and seeing like characters at their beginning and knowing where they'll go. I constantly am getting chills and like goosebumps just thinking about how unbelievably epic this story is. <laughs> so I, I can't, I was, I was trying to figure out how do I tackle this coverage? Do I try and remain objective in any fashion? And I said, no, screw that. So for this coverage, I'm going to be, you know, just basically authentically what I am, which is a super fan of these books. And mm -hmm. not only that, I'm sort of that guy who, you know, the book was better kind of person too, especially for this series. Um, especially in later seasons, and but even some early on. So I, I am a book first person. I so I read the first four novels before the TV show was officially announced. Um, I I remember just like desperately googling when does the next book come out? Book five after I finished book four, and mm -hmm. that's when I discovered that there was talks of an HBO adaptation. But so yeah, mm -hmm. so the first four novels, reading it, I had all of my I fell in love with it, having no idea it was going to be adapted, and and so. My love is always for the books first because that is my that was my introduction to it. I read through four novels without having any of the actors in mind, without having any of that in my head. It was all just pure imagination. Mm -hmm. And so it, it holds a special place for me for that reason, too, because I don't think there's a lot of people left like that. I, actually, there are a lot of people left like that. But comparatively to the number of people who saw the show first now, it is a smaller, a smaller amount, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that must have been a really interesting experience because that's not how I experienced it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I wish that I had. I think that, that, that honestly, like I, I agree with you in this case, like as much as I love the show, it's it's kind of like in later seasons gotten to the point where you can tell that George R. R. Martin's story structure and like what he sets up mm -hmm. isn't kind of their, their following light anymore. And that's why like I would say like the first three or four seasons are absolutely like concrete solid. As far as my experience, I um, heard of it. I, well, I heard of the books, and I, when I was being adapted, I'd heard of it. And I was like, tons of stuff get adapted all the time. I'm sure it'll be cool. Maybe I'll check it out at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know like how people felt about these books before. Well, that's something to ask you, actually. How how would you say like the fantasy community saw these books before they were adapted? Like, were they the end all be all like number one fantasy story? Would you say? No, I I don't think so. But they were definitely hugely popular. Uh, I wasn't as into the fantasy, you know, sci fi fandom at that time because, like mm -hmm. I said, I had fallen out of love with that sort of thing. So I'm not necessarily the best person to answer that question. Um, but from everything I've read, um, like he, he didn't hit number one on the bestsellers list until book four. Um, all okay. the other ones placed um, and did well, but it really uh, it took a little while for this for these series to really take off. Um, I think at, at the time it was always sort of neck and neck with Robert Jordan. Who, who we may cover at some point when the, when Wheel of Time comes out. Um, mm -hmm. He's another big fantasy author. And in fact, he got a, he got a, we'll talk about it, but he got a Robert Jordan quote for his first novel. And that was like really big and, and selling a bunch of copies. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So my, back to my experience with yeah. it. Uh, the first season came out, it was fully out. And the first episode of the second season was about to come out. And our mutual friend Jake was like, hey man, have you seen the show? And I was like, no, I haven't. And he's like, okay, 
we're gonna watch the entire first season right now because this the first episode of the second season comes out tonight mm-hmm. and we watched for 10 hours straight and then <laughs> and watched all of the first season and then proceeded to watch the first episode of the second season all on the same day wow and then uh and so that was that was my introduction to it and i was like holy shit this is a game changer this is like all of my lord of the rings you grab your harry potters you grab everything you push it all together to this adult content mm-hmm. and then this like epic storytelling this is this is like was always i feel like in the pipeline for me i was just waiting to find it yeah so then that led to me reading it i don't think i read the books until after uh after the red wedding so oh, okay. i was a show watcher till after the red wedding and then so season after season three i was like fuck it i think it's time to read all of these books yeah uh if it's not already obvious this is my favorite fantasy series and it contains my favorite fantasy novel which is book three a storm of swords that is my favorite fantasy novel of all time and at some point hopefully we'll get to the to get to the point where i can cover that uh but it's really really like it's hard to separate anything from the overall series to me and there's definitely weaker points and stronger points, but yeah, I think uh, I think that's my favorite fantasy novel, and and I don't know if that necessarily makes it my favorite novel of all time because I tend to think of favorites in terms of the genres they're in. Like I have a favorite fantasy novel, I have a favorite sci-fi novel, like that kind of thing. Um, but it's definitely in that pantheon of favorite novels of all time, um, mainly because I find it difficult to compare certain genres with one another because it, it almost feels like apples and oranges. I feel like that's a good policy. It's just, imp- it's so hard. You can't, it's, if I just said one movie was my favorite movie, it's just would be, it would end up being false because something else on another day, I would be feeling a different genre. Right. And it would... So, uh, how I want to tackle this, I want to go into some in-depth bio for George R. R. Martin. Um, I re- I knew a lot about him, but I researched a bunch for these, for this episode. I find it all really fascinating for, from a writing point of view, because I always want to know like the human behind the story and how this story came to be and the journey uh, behind their life and all this stuff. So just like we did with Tolkien, I think we're going to start off by talking a good bit about George R. R. Martin's biography. Um, but what we'll do is we'll put a timestamp in the show notes for when we start talking about the book itself and move past the bio. So if you really aren't interested in that, you can you can go ahead and read, read and skip down. Uh, the other disclaimer is we've decided we're going to approach this fully as people who are caught up on the show. Um, this is going to be a retrospective uh, look at book one, season one, with basically full spoilers. Now, we're not going to go crazy with them, but what we might do is get into theories, stuff like that, which often relies on existing knowledge from later from later seasons. There are a few big things that I know we're going to spoil um, that were revealed in later seasons. So, yeah, my best my best advice is if you want to, if you haven't caught up, catch up before you listen to this i guess (laughs) just to be safe and there's a lot of there's a lot of podcasts out there with people experiencing it for the first time and giving more just like honest reactions to it um that's not going to be us for us to try and do that it would be fake uh so instead we're going to give our point of view as people who it's beloved material and we're just looking back at it with you and uh hopefully we we can we can have some really fun uh discussions about it so we when we were doing our lord of the rings we both talked about how it was like it felt like coming home like it was a very um, we talked about this. Uh, I think Harry, you said Harry Potter as well, and how it was a very familiar, kind of warm place to be. And I had a funny experience with this, where it was it was a bit of that, but also like the that home was was um, it's scary <laughs> and it's dark and it's and it's and emotional and um, it's not as like friendly as Lord of the Rings or, or Harry Potter, yet it still had that familiar 
feeling because I love this story so much. It was like it was like it was almost like returning to a sad memory of childhood or a, or mm-hmm. a memory t- tinged with sadness because seeing the Starks, particularly early on, was so happy. But then it's also like the weight of everything that happens to them was weighing on me. That's what I was going to say is just being back in Winterfell and seeing them all young is is that feeling, that warm feeling. And it very quickly events start to cascade that you're like, oh, is this is this does it have to go down like that this this way again? Yeah. Do we need do we, does Brand really need to fall out of the window again, or can we <laughs> see an alternate history where all this stuff doesn't happen like this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think before we get into the story itself, let's start out with that bio. Are, are you ready for that? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So George Raymond Martin was born in 1948, and he adopted Richard as an additional name. At his confirmation at age 13, becoming George R.R. Martin. Now, I thought that was interesting because I had always heard, and I think it was sort of the uh, myth around it, is that he merely adopted it as a marketing term. Now, maybe he decided to go by George R.R. Martin as his writing name for a marketing reason, but the R.R. itself was his authentically his initials. Very cool. Like we talked about this before with like J.K. Rowling, and we kept talking about how these fantasy authors have these initialed names. And I don't know, I find it really interesting. I yeah. think that if I ever write a fantasy novel, I'm gonna have to, I don't know, make make some sort of a a nickname or something. Yeah, I had a, I had a professor who used to joke that I should take on R.R. for my for my so Luke R.R. Elliot, you know, things like that. <laughs> that would um, be so funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not gonna do that, but it was funny. To think <laughs> you <about>. should totally. <laughs> um, So during Martin's childhood, he said repeatedly that his world consisted predominantly from 1st Street to 5th Street between his grade school and his home in New York City. This limited world made him want to travel and experience other places, but his only way of doing so was through his imagination, so he became a voracious reader. He also used to watch ships coming into harbor and imagine stories about where they'd been and where they were going. I've heard him talk about this in, in, in person before. So Martin began writing and selling monster stories for pennies to other neighborhood children, dramatic readings included. He also wrote stories about a mythical kingdom populated by his pet turtles. The turtles died frequently in their toy castles, so he decided they were killing each other off in sinister plots. He also became an avid comic book fan and later credited Stan Lee for being one of his greatest literary influences, even more than Shakespeare or Tolkien. A letter Martin wrote to the editor of Fantastic Four was printed in the issue number 20 in 1963. It was the first of many he sent. Fans who read his letters wrote to him in turn, and through such contacts, Martin joined the fledgling comics fandom of the era. Writing fiction for various fanzines, he was the first to register for an early comic book convention held in New York in 1964, the first New York Comic-Con. So I knew that he was very heavily involved in like comics and loved Stan Lee, but I did not know that he, so he was kind of the originator of the, of New York Comic-Con. Well, he was one of the first attendees. I don't know how much he like, he didn't put it together or anything, but he was at the first Comic-Con, which that's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, that's awesome. And he's been a perennial figure at Comic-Cons ever since. I assume that it was like very Star Wars heavy. It was probably right around that time, like 1970s. That was 1964. So before Star Wars. Yeah. Whoa. 1964. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So in 1970, he earned a BS in journalism from Northwestern University, and he went on to complete his MS in journalism in 1971. He was eligible for the draft during Vietnam War, to which he objected. So he applied for and obtained a conscientious objector status and instead did alternative service for two years. So Martin began selling science fiction stories professionally in 1970 at age 21. 
His first sale was The Hero, which he sold to Galaxy Magazine. Other sales soon followed. His first story to be nominated for the Hugo Award and Nebula Award was With Morning Comes Mistfall, published in 1973 in Analog Magazine. His first novel, Dying of the Light, was completed in 1976 and published in 1977. That same year, the enormous success of Star Wars made had a huge impact on the publishing industry and science fiction, so when he sold the novel, he sold it for the same amount he would make in three years of teaching. So he happened to publish his first sci-fi novel the year Star Wars came out. <laughs> Good for him. That's awesome. It's pretty amazing. So, I mean, this, he's been doing it forever, if you think about it. Like, he's been doing it a long time. I did not realize he was, like, active since basically 1970. Yeah. I thought it was, like, he'd been active since, like, 1980. Well, I mean, his his publishing history is really fascinating to me. It's To me, it's like a story of persistence and productivity and bouncing back from 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 things so it you know i think it's a good thing to listen to for writers out there who who often get caught up in the idea of like my debut is has to be the best thing i'll ever write and that's going to make or break my career and then after that you know it's all downhill because his is a his is an example of a career that did not go that way so the short stories he was able to sell in his early 20s gave him some profit, but not enough to pay his bills, which prevented him from becoming a full-time writer that he wanted to be. Martin's chess skills and experience allowed him to be hired as a tournament director for the Continental Chess Association that ran chess tournaments in the weekends. This gave him sufficient income, and because the tournaments only ran on Saturdays and Sundays, it allowed him to work as a writer five days a week from 1973 to 1976. Now, from 76 to 78, Martin was an English and journalism instructor at Clark University, and he became writer-in-residence at the college from 1978 to 79. While he enjoyed teaching the sudden death of a friend and fellow author, T Tom Remy, in late 1977, made Martin reevaluate his own life, and he eventually decided to become, try and become a full-time writer. He resigned from his job and moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1979. Now, Martin is a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, otherwise known as the SFWA or SIFWA, um, which is still the leading active organization of writers in, in, in the country. And he became the organiza organization's Southwest Regional Director from 1977 to 79. He also served as its vice president from 96 to 98. In 1976, at the 34th World Science Fiction Convention, a.k.a. Worldcon, Martin and his friend and fellow writer-editor, the late Gardner Dozois, conceived of and organized the first Hugo Losers Party for the benefit of all past and present Hugo Losing writers on the evening following the convention's Hugo Awards ceremony. Martin was nominated for two Hugos that, that, that year, but lost both awards. The Hugo Losers Party became an annual Worldcon event thereafter. Uh, I went to Worldcon last year, and definitely it's a big deal, and a lot of people get really excited to go to this thing. It's become a massive thing now. Now, I don't know how much of this stuff is still done this way, but I always heard that if you were a loser, if you lost the Hugo, you were invited to arrive. And then, like, if you were a winner, you could still come, but you had to wait, like, an hour or something. And <laughs> then and then it, there was also a certain point in which it opened up to the public. Um, I think when it originally started, it was literally just for the losers and, like, their friends, and no one else was allowed to go. If you won, you weren't allowed to go. Like, stuff mm -hmm. like that. I mean, that's pretty That's pretty cool. You're excluding people, but like to be in that prestigious group of losers is kind of fun. It's yeah. like, even if you don't win, there's something in it that, that like you're going to have a great experience from. Well, I mean, you're excluding the people who won and, the, you know, if they get to win. That's their that's their yeah. thing. So that's the whole thing is it's yeah, it's rewarding. It's 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 like commiserating with the people who don't get to actually win. Right. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a great idea, and it's so cool that it's still ongoing. It's still a big thing every year. Um, I would love to go to one of those. So I, I just dream of one day being able to to <laughs> make it to, that, to the Hugo. To yeah, or even just like know somebody who knows somebody who can get me in. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, that. you. I thought you were like leading up to saying I would love to lose a Hugo. Well, nowadays, like it is open to the public, quote unquote, but you have to have an invitation and all this okay. stuff. It's so it's like it's not just open to anybody. Um, and because it's too popular, right? Yeah, it can be tough to get in, but I, I, I mean, I would love to do it. So Martin has said that he started writing science fiction horror hybrids in the late 1970s to disprove a statement made by a critic that claimed that science fiction and horror were opposites and therefore incompatible. Martin considered Sand Kings, his 1978, the best known of these. Another was the novella Night Flyers, 1980, which was produced into a 1987 film adaptation called Night Flyers, with a screenplay co-written by Martin himself. Now, Martin was unhappy about having to cut plot elements in order to accommodate the film's small budget. While not a hit at theaters, Martin believes that the film saved his career and that everything he has written since exists in large part because of it. Now, there's there's also a new sci-fi adaptation of this, right? Yeah, I think it was like either sci-fi or sci-fi and Netflix or something like that. They're making a show, and I'm not even sure if it released yet, but I did just hear that like it's not going to get picked up for a second season or right. it's out and it's not picked up. Huh. Um, but I haven't seen the original movie or this this series. Have you seen either? No, I've, I've seen neither. I haven't read it. I, I know nothing about it. So uh, I am curious, though. Um, so in 1982, Martin published a vampire novel called Fever Dream set in 19th century on the Mississippi River. Martin followed up Fever Dream with another horror novel, this one called The Armageddon Rag which proved to be an unexpected commercial failure. And he has said that it essentially destroyed my career as a novelist at the time. I think he got a huge advance from publishers and then was did not cover hardly any of it. So he sort of became blacklisted. Okay, that's what I was going to ask, yeah. You start to become known as someone who writes a great manuscript that looks like it's going to sell a lot but doesn't, which is a killer. But can you just can you just take less? Like, can you just take less money and still get published? And Or does it not work like that? It's It doesn't really work like that, is my short answer. <laughs> um, so Martin later got an offer from Hollywood when producer Philip DeGuerre Jr. wanted to adapt the Armageddon rag into a film. However, the film adaptation did not happen, but they stayed in touch, and when he became the producer for the revival of The Twilight Zone, Martin was offered a job as a writer. Now, this I know about and, and yeah. have have seen. Okay, so working for television paid a lot better than writing literature, so he decided to move to Hollywood to seek a new career. After the CBS series was canceled, Martin migrated over to the already underway satirical science fiction series Max Headroom. However, before his scripts could go into production, the ABC show was canceled in the middle of its second season. Martin was then hired as a writer-producer for the new dramatic fantasy series Beauty and the Beast in 1989. He became the show's co-supervising producer and wrote 14 of its episodes. Yeah, I know a little bit about his. He he basically switched fields at one point. He yeah. started working in film and 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 TV, and I find that to be really interesting because I think that's kind of a tough jump to 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 be like, oh, I'm a novelist and I write novels that are published, yeah. and then jump over to Hollywood producer or Hollywood writer is right. crazy. And all of these steps are leading to the creation of uh, the Song of Ice and Fire series. So it's all it's all you know important steps in his career and his life. To that to me you know looking back you could say it was all leading to this but um i'm sure it was very harrowing at the time and it was it was i mean i you can read into all this stuff like huge amounts of frustration 
thinking something's going to be amazing. I know that he's talked about how he poured his heart and soul into the Armageddon rag and then have it be a flop was really disheartening for him. Didn't mm-hmm. think he was ever going to make it as a novelist after that. So you look at Game of Thrones and you're like, of course, this is going to be a great TV show. Of course, HBO picking this up is going to. But that show is not as successful without George R. R. Martin's experience as a producer and as a writer, like and him coming on and producing so heavily for the show early on um, and helping uh, along with the production. Like, yeah. And obviously, Weiss and Benioff are like really for a while there. They were making pure adaptation right. for the most part. Well, we need we should we should save some of that for our for our show episode next week. I want to make sure we, we talk, we're going to talk about the show at length. If you're, if you know, if you're interested in that. So in 1987, Martin published a collection of short horror stories in a, a book called portraits of his children. During the same period, he continued working as a book series editor, this time overseeing the development of a multi-author wildcard series, which takes place in a shared universe in which a small set, uh, slice of post world war two humanity gains superpowers after the release of an alien-engineered virus, it is an ongoing series to, to this day. And, and in fact, in 2016, Martin announced that Universal Cable Productions has acquired the rights to adapt Wild Ca- the Wild Cards novels into a television series. So this is a shared universe. So multi-authors come in, and he and he edits this, and he still does this. And there's many, many books in it. And it's basically superheroes, but from what I understand, a little darker. Have you read any of it, or do you? I've no. never read one. I, it's something I really, I actually, really do want to read. I, in fact, I know a couple of the people who've written for it, and so I'm very, I'm, I'm excited about it. It's just like it's a huge thing, so it's one of those things that I haven't gotten into yet. And I know that it spans many years, so it's like it's, it's also kind of hard to figure out where to start sometimes. But yeah, I, I mean, I am, I am intrigued. I, I, it sounds like it would be right up my alley. I need to check it out. Well, if they do the TV series, I'm sure that would be a good jumping off point for us. Yeah. Uh, so, A Song of Ice and Fire. This all, all leading to this. In 1991, Martin briefly returned to writing novels. He had grown frustrated with his t- that his TV pilots and screenplays were not getting made, and that TV-related production limitations like budgets and episode lengths were forcing him to cut characters and trim battle scenes. This pushed Martin back towards writing books, where he did not have to worry about compromising the size of his imagination. Admiring the works of J.R.R. Tolkien in his childhood, he wanted to write an epic fantasy, though he did not have any specific ideas other than he said he has said that his goal was to write something that could never be adapted to film. <laughs> so this eventually turned into his epic series, A Song of Ice and Fire, which was inspired by The War of the Roses and the historical novels The Accursed Kings and Ivanhoe. Has he said out and out? That yes. those are all influences. Okay. Yeah. When I heard him talk, I've heard him talk at a couple different things and watched some videos of him, and he said that basically you can steal from history all you want because it's not copyrighted. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. And so he said that I think the the Red Wedding was based based off of an event called like the Black Supper or something. That was like a real thing that happened in Ireland or Scotland. Um, so he yeah, and then the the War of the Roses is all over these novels. And mm-hmm. I, I love the idea of him reading these historical novels and then taking inspiration because you can see the thought process of reading these historical novels that were all about like strategic weddings and marrying off your children to other families to form alliances and and people having hostages and, and you know, children getting murdered and, and just all this crazy stuff happening. And then he's also and then you also read like Lord of the Rings that's medieval, but none of that stuff is really happening. Mm-hmm. And him thinking like, I'm going to write a fantasy novel where it that incorporates all of the stuff that was actually going on in the Middle Ages and incorporates that into the fantasy world. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that he takes that 
macro look at these wars and these like arrangements and all this stuff and then takes it down to like the character level yeah and and skills honed from years of working on television probably where you have to be very character focused yeah it, it all came together so martin originally conceptualized his song of ice and fire as being three volumes but it is now intended to comprise seven uh the first which we are covering is a a game of thrones which was published in 96 followed by a clash of kings in 98 and a storm of swords in 2000 in, in 2005, A Feast for Crows, the fourth novel in the series, became his first New York Times bestseller for the series at number one. Uh, sorry, first New York Times number one bestseller. The fifth book, A Dance with Dragons, was originally published in two, uh, 2011 and became an international bestseller, including the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list and many others. It remained on the New York Times list for 88 weeks. I remember that coming out like w within a short time from the show, right? Like yeah. it was either right before or right after. No, the first it was season. It, uh, the dance came out during the show. I think it was maybe right after the first or second season. I'd have to look at the years, but somewhere in there. It would have been after the first season. Yeah. So when Martin was between projects, uh, to, to dive a little more into the the genesis of the idea, in the summer of 1999, he started writing a new science fiction novel he called Avalon. After three chapters, he had a vivid idea of a boy who was seeing a man's beheading and finding direwolves in the snow, which would eventually become the first non-prologue chapter of A Game of Thrones. Putting Avalon aside, Martin finished this chapter in a few days and grew certain that it was part of a larger story. After a few more chapters, Martin perceived this book as a fantasy story and started making maps and genealogies. However, the writing of this book was interrupted for a few years when Martin returned to Hollywood to produce, produce the TV series Doorways that ABC had ordered but ultimately never aired. So he has said, the first scene, chapter one of the first book, the chapter where they find the direwolf pups, just came to me out of nowhere. I was at work on a different novel, and suddenly I saw that scene. It didn't belong in the novel I was writing, and it came to me so vividly that I had to sit down and write it, and by the time I did, it led to a second chapter, and the second chapter was the Catelyn chapter where Ned had just come back. I mean, that chapter, my God. We're going to talk about some stuff, but it's Jesus, man. <laughs> so you can feel like you feel the weight in that chapter, too. Yeah. You're like everything in this is like so important. You can feel that it all came from that chapter. It's crazy. Yeah. In 1994, Martin gave his agent Kirby McCauley the first 200 pages and a two page story projection as part of the planned trilogy with the novels Dance of Dragons and The Winds of Winter intended to follow. When Martin had still not reached the novel's end at 1,400 manuscript pages, he felt like the series needed to be four and eventually six books long, which he imagined as two linked trilogies of one long story. The revised finished manuscript of A Game of Thrones was uh, 1,000 pages long, with publication following in 96. Uh, 300 pages were removed from Game of Thrones, which later served as the opening of the second book, which is A Clash of Kings. After the success of the Lord of the Rings films, Martin received his first inquiries to the rights of a Song and Ice and Fire series from various producers and filmmakers. So I wanted to hint on that too a little bit because I think that's interesting because it connects it to Lord of the Rings, right? Mm -hmm. The Lord of the Rings were so popular that that's one of the reasons we were able to get Game well, of Thrones. Well, yeah, and this show, this show wouldn't exist without Lord of the Rings being right. that successful. Okay, so that's all my bio stuff I have. I have some fun anecdotes about like the time I met Martin and stuff like that. But I think I'll save those for other ones. Cause we've already talked about him so much here. Um, so you can look forward to that in future episodes. But for now, if you're ready, I'm ready to get into the story, man. Let's get into it. Okay. So we open with our prologue. We have our night's watchman out in the woods. And I wrote down that <laughs> this book immediately starts with two things we're told not to do. <laughs> First off, it includes a prologue, which is a big, 
thing that there's been some recent pushes against. A lot of editors and agents saying they don't like them. You should usually just cut them. They don't normally have anything to do with the rest of the book. Um, I Yeah, I would argue they're talking about bad pro- prologues, um, but they would argue that most prologues are bad. So I, I don't know. I would argue that the prologue serves as an opening for the series and the series sort of existential threat of the others. Um, so it serves a particular purpose in this story. Um, the other thing that, 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 that this does that you're, we're told not to do is it begins with dialogue. Um, in general, that's frowned upon too. Like people hate when you start with dialogue and, and then and like you're in the middle of someone having a conversation, you just open with dialogue. They find it to be kind of like like a gimmick, right? It's just funny to me. I, lo- I love looking in and seeing all of these rules getting broken. It's not to say they're not good things to listen to. Um, it's also, you know, this book came out in 96. So we've, ha- we've had 20 plus years of things to come afterwards to make us tire of certain tropes, certain things. Um, so maybe you're seeing some effects of that. Uh, but you can also see how a lot of new writers will make these mistakes because, you know, they'll might read of Game of Thrones and go, oh, this is how you open a chapter. And, and so they just do it that way reflexively. This prologue also introduces us to our to this world uh it's 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 exciting it shows it demonstrates martin's extreme talent in my opinion at uh characterizing people in just a few sentences uh like will this hunter who who is a who we know is a poacher who chose the black over losing his hand and Mm -hmm. and people and it said that no one moved as silently in the wood as he um, so, so he, he, he's a couple little like lines here and there that just make you feel like, you know, this character with, in such little amount of time. And I'm always, I'm always in awe that he's able to do that so effectively. He does this thing with detail that I think other people couldn't pull off. I think other writers can pull it off if you're like a master level author, but he, yeah. he does this thing with details where, um, and I think some people, I've heard some people say that they get bogged down on his details. Sure. Like they get bogged down on, he's talking about colors of people's gloves and the, the mud on their shoes and things like that. But to me, it's like, it, it just, I, I get pictures in my mind. I just shut my eyes and I get pictures mm. and he like paints these pictures for me. And I always, I'm always, when I jump into a George R. R. Martin book, well, specifically one of these books, it takes me a second to adjust to it, but then something clicks and then I'm just like painting pictures in my mind. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, so some of that I think is, is sort of the hallmark of epic fantasy that it's, you're going to get the most immersive detailed story out there. There's no other genre. You could argue maybe some sci-fi does this, like especially space operas, uh, might get into it, but, but yeah, where you're going to get this much detail over this many pages with this many characters, like epic fantasy is one of the only things that can get away with that. And when you have a readership as wide and varied as Martin's is, yeah, you're going to get people who are going to bounce up against that because maybe that's the only epic fantasy they've ever read, <laughs> you know, and it's not normally their their uh, their thing. Uh, so here we also get our first reference to direwolves. So I love to look for like ways that he sets things up. So mm-hmm. direwolves are so important in the first chapter, yet we get they are they're first mentioned here offhandedly. Like it sounds like howling that they thinks like could be direwolves or or talks about um, one of the few things they have to worry about when they're out here are direwolves, things like that. Well, I love that because it's also all of the threats and they're obviously like, I think at one point, one of the characters is like, you can tell that he's afraid of the others, but doesn't want to say anything out loud because they haven't been around forever. And some of them, some of the people who've taken the black kind of think it's a myth at this point. Yeah. So like, he's not willing to say like, I'm scared that there's an other out here and they're thinking, oh, it might be wolves. And so Martin also loves to play, to toy with expectations. And, and, and I find it brilliant. So here he opens up with Sir Waymar Royce, 
who is this sort of full of himself, young, brash, inexperienced leader, and Will, who's this like, you know, hard bitten, yeah, uh, you know, hunter and and ranger and has seen a lot and 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 i think uh garrett the other the other night's watchman there is much the same an older guy he's lost both of his ears and tip of his nose to frostbite so we expect that raymore is going to fold right like he's gonna he's going to be exposed as being this sort of pretender and these older hard-bitten guys are going to be kind of the heroes of this part of the story or the the people we're rooting for and i love how he totally inverts that in a way when the others actually arrive, because we see Sir Raymore actually be really brave. Now, maybe naively brave, you could say, but we see him actually say, he says, dance with me then, and he draws his sword, and Will, who's looking at him, is like, he was no longer a boy in this moment. I think it was like cockiness. Yeah, too, but though. it's still yeah. a cool inversion, right? Like he decides, because he knows he's going to die, so he's like, I'm going to face them. And we see Will cowering in a tree, and right. not he has a moment where he says, it was my duty to, to call out. Yet I didn't because I knew it would also be my death. Right. So I love that inversion because that's not what I was expecting from this scene as I was reading it. It was a nice little reversal of what how I thought it was going to play out. And yeah, I mean, the others here are scary. They're wraith. They're always, I've always taken them as more wraith-like in the books than they are in the show. Just how silently they move. How magical and sort of like uh, almost translucent a lot of their like clothing seems to be and glowy mm-hmm. and shimmery. And I love that immediate mix of horror and fantasy, right? Like this shows you this is going to be a dark book. It's going to be gritty. It's going to be realistic. And it's going to be a blend of horror and, and, and fantasy right from the jump. This is also the first instance that we see the White Walkers or the others, whatever we're seeing here, have some sort of ability over the dead. Like we kind right. of see the rising of of waymar yeah i mean we we know a lot more obviously now but like when we start to hear like winter is coming and all of these things from the starks we know that yeah. that's a potentially what they're talking about well and it creates a huge amount of uh i what is it called like dramatic irony or whatever where you as an audience know something that the characters don't right because we see all these characters totally discounting the existence of the others and and going about their ways and we so we always know that there's this looming threat that we saw firsthand in the opening prologue and that they are all unaware of okay so our first real chapter uh introduces bran and uh he is a boy who is on his way to see his first beheading at seven years old uh we we hear talk of old nan's tales um, and in fact, she mentions half-human children born of wildlings with the others. Um, and we re- we realize that the man who's going to be beheaded is Garrod, the, uh, one of the other Night's Watchmen who fled. Um, mm-hmm. But it's funny because we don't get to hear him say anything. We just know because of the, the frostbite ears on the nose. Um, so we recognize that he's the same person. Uh, it's... it's uh, it's cool stuff, and I think that the old Nan prophecy is interesting, or not prophecy, but old Nan tells all these tales, right? And so I many of them, them have ended up becoming true that, yeah, um, she's almost like a soothsayer of some kind. You could, mm-hmm. you could think maybe. I I go in for this stuff. This is this is, I, and I wanted to ask you about this because I feel like for me the political intrigue and the vying for the throne and stuff I find it fascinating. I think it's really great powerful storytelling but i go in for the i'm there for the lore like i want the background i want the lore i want the magic i want and like but i i do i do acknowledge that like doling it out in in small amounts creates more interesting and and deeper stories right it was well, funny too because we see ned is such a pragmatist when he's introduced 
Um, yet he's he's using his Valyrian steel, which is called a spell forged weapon. So there's like proof of magic all around uh, all around them. Yet they still mostly deny its existence. But I would say the Starks are by far the ones who are like kind of acknowledging it the most, right? Yeah, At but least. even even Ned uh, poo poos the idea of the others when I think Catelyn brings it up in the next in the next chapter. But yeah. he's like he's an old gods guy though. Like he knows yeah. like winter's coming means something more than just like it's gonna get cold. I feel like right. right. Or do you not think so? I, I mean I don't know. It's I, I think he I think he struggles with it because I think Ned Stark is is at his base a pragmatist, and I think a lot of that stuff is just kind of old tales to him. I think he thinks of it as as if there was things like that, they're just all gone now, kind of thing. Um, he he believes he re- he lives in a world where where that's no longer a threat. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think Catelyn is the one who, who buys into it a little more we see early on. So, so, I mean, there's lots of great stuff here. We're introduced to Bran for the first time. He's our opening chapter of the Starks, at least, uh, POV. We meet Theon Greyjoy, who's the first thing he does is laugh and kick the head of the beheaded guy because he finds quote unquote, everything a joke. Uh, we meet Jon Snow and Rob, who are of an age, and that age is 14 years old, which, by the way, everybody's younger in the books than they are in the show. Yeah, I think we have to talk about that. And, wh- I mean, what do you think about the fa- fact that all these characters for the book are, like, 13, 14, 15, 16 age? Or younger. Um, I, I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's a deliberate choice by Martin. Um, probably informed by him studying histories and reading about all of these you know, young, young leaders in warfare and people who are 15 years old and 14 years old and doing all these incredible things. And just like people grew up so much faster back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And our modern perception of what a 12 year old is, is just so night and day different from Mm -hmm. what that, what that was in that time period. Um, So he decided he wanted to include that in his fantasy. And you, there's so many arguments against it. People saying that fantasy is not medieval times and to conflate the two is kind of a mistake. And, you know, it all comes down to what stylistic choices you want to make. And he sat out, he set out to write a story that that was more, had more in line with sort of the histories of the medieval period in Europe and to reflect what he was reading about in War of the Roses and, and, and stories like that. So he decided to make his characters um, ages that he thought was appropriate for, for that kind of story. Mm-hmm. And it definitely creates a really a really uh, contentious uh, sort of situation where you're, you're trying to figure out how do I feel about these kids doing, you know, very adult things. My theory would be that if you're going to write your most of your main characters at an age range like this you'd be kind of going towards that audience because like, i feel like adults would want to read about adults as well kind of right. young adults usually but not not this young so it's just interesting because it seems to me like a modern audience member would kind of think of themselves at that age and say like yeah. what was i like at 12 or 13 and then yeah it, in my mind honestly and it might just be because of the show i just age everybody up a little bit right um it, while I'm reading the story, just like Daenerys being 13 is kind of yeah. it's kind of tough. Yeah, and that was a big, uh, big change for me when I saw the show because I wasn't like that. You know what I mean? I was I was very caught up in the, in the book, and so I pictured everybody to be those ages, which is pretty wild for a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I'm sure. I mean, he, he probably had to had to fight to keep it this way because I I just feel like a lot of editors and and agents and so forth were probably going to tell him, oh no, no, you need to age everybody up. It's going to sell better for 
you know, X, Y, and Z reason. Um, and then, yeah, also the worry that people are going to think it's YA because it's got such young point of view characters um, is always a, a potential problem with having young point of view characters um, if you don't want your book to be considered YA, uh, which I guarantee you he didn't for this for this series. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the way it is in the books. So let's move on. We hear Eddard tell tell the uh, say the iconic uh, line, the man who passes the sentence should, should swing the sword, which is known as the old way. And he basically gives advice to Bran that that uh, leaders need to never never forget what death is by removing themselves from it so much, and and so this is our first introduction to, introduction to Ned Stark and sort of his worldview. And I, I was reflecting on how it seems he seems to be such a hard man with such a like kind of brutal view of the world, yet we can tell he's honorable and we can tell he loves his family. And he does things with for a reason. It's very sort of stoicism, like um, it's 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 that like that philosophy. And he's preparing his children for a harsh world. Mm-hmm. And from our modern perspective perspectives, it seems like he's sort of overdoing it, right? Um, like you're going to create like these little hardened you know monsters out of your children because you're 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 telling them everything's so dark and you're showing them beheadings and all this stuff. But we know that he's actually preparing the Starks to weather what's going to become just an absolutely brutal series of events for this family. And so he is he's actually imparting the perfect wisdom to all of them mm-hmm. at these at these young ages. And uh, I, we, I'm sure we don't want to get too much into lore, but like the Starks, w- w- the reason that the Starks survived and the reason that they were the only kingdom that wasn't conquered basically by the Andals yeah. was because they were so hardened by the winter and they were so hardened and they stuck by their ways. And so for him to raise his kids in this way, yeah, you can see every other, everybody else's kids throughout the story are much softer summer children. And he raised his kids to be, to persevere and, and carry on and, and be the leaders that they're eventually going to be. So next up we find the, the dead direwolf, uh, which is found impaled by a stag's antler, which I absolutely love how, how the the symbolism is dealt with here because all the characters share a moment where they kind of like look at each other like oh shit when when it's revealed how this wolf died but mm-hmm. we don't yet know what it means so it's right. the reversal of sort of some of the other things that have been happening because the characters all know oh no that's a really bad really bad omen for things to come but we don't know why they're why that's bad this is the real introduction to John for me um, we see this this bastard boy who is outside the family looking in and we see him be sort of selfless and 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 he doesn't count himself when he's talking when he's saying about how they're going to save the pups and these were meant for your children and all this stuff and he only can make it work by not counting himself right mm-hmm. and he's he sets it all up and he convinces Ned to say, to let the wolves live which of course are like little puppies and the dog lover in me is just so warmed by this and I just want to see them all <laughs> you know taken care of get taken care of and have these awesome wolves and and then I love the the end of this this chapter where there's one another one that he finds and it's the silent one the white one that he names Ghost and it's off uh, on its own it's off on its own and Theon says something about how like we should just kill it and and John's yeah. like no this one's mine yeah he says I think not Greyjoy this one belongs to me yeah it's so cool and and so so then also the idea of prophecy is introduced really strongly here and the idea of like these were all meant for you for your children and i love the way like martin does prophecy in a way that's just like induces chills for me somehow 
it's the coolest way to do it because it's not hammy. It 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 really uh, it feels like it intersects like real life and myth in a really cool way. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. And I don't really know how he does it, but it's so good. There's like this guiding hand of fate. I feel like through these through the story, and the them finding the direwolves is a big moment of that. But knowing what happens to each direwolf and knowing like how everything ends up. Um, well, I guess not totally, but not but totally. No, yeah. Knowing like kind of where things lead generally. I mean, just specifically with what we see in a little bit, like how Lady goes down. And that's kind of also in itself a prophecy of like, you think of the wolves as representing each of their owners and, and it gets pretty prophetic. Well, and especially in these early chapters, uh, it's very important. And I would say in general, the books, just the, the wolves are so much more important than they are in the show, mm-hmm. um, which I know is a lot of budgetary stuff, which we can talk about when we get to the show. Um, so I also want to talk a little bit about Martin's style here because he is, he, when I, I remember when I first read these novels, I thought he was a British writer. Because he writes in a way that is very evocative of old English in a, in a, in a, to, a to an extent. Um, so when I found out he was an American, I was surprised. Um, so clearly he's doing this for a very particular purpose to evoke a very particular feel. Um, and it's incredible how well he does it, in my opinion. I, th- I think he he really nails the this sort of idea of it's almost Tolkien-esque. It's almost something. You know, I don't know what it is, but he, he really nails the language and the, the style for this yeah. story it feels like he really drew on that like traditional fantasy structure kind of yeah. while also the la- like you said the language well um, like west western fantasy yeah yeah so uh so let's move into chapter two it's catelyn and she's coming to see her husband in uh, by the werewood this is another reason why i feel like like ned kind of is in with keeping with the old ways and he because having the werewood be important to him it's clearly like he he understands the importance of that he's still connected to kind of that old the old ways through that as well yeah i like that i also love that when she first shows up he he asks her where are the children and she says where and then she says that he always asks her that and i just i don't know god that stuff's all so good because it shows that it demonstrates that ned cares about his kids they're not just he's not just pumping out kids and you know what i mean like doesn't care about him like he deeply cares about his children shows how tight-knit this family is in many ways and then it also shows how aware he is of the dangers of this world to where he he feels like he always needs to ask her if she knows where the children are i don't know i just love all that it's just him realizing that like the dark times are coming like something bad is going to happen eventually well in winter is coming we can talk about um to me those words are essentially like the scout motto be prepared um and to me that's yeah if if winter's coming the the follow-up statement is make sure you're ready for it and that's sort of what the stark words mean to me is that he want he has a family that's prepared for the worst and man i'm telling you with what goes down against this family, you could not have a better motto to be your family motto than that. Because that's going to prepare you to be the only sort of people who could survive what happens to the Starks. This is also where Catelyn is telling uh, Ned for the first time that his uh, childhood mentor, John Aaron, is dead. And we learn about Cat's sister. Uh, we also learn uh, that Robert Baratheon himself, the king, is coming uh, with a whole entourage to stay at Winterfell with them. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's setting up, this is setting up like the, the main plot into motion, right? And uh, the, the idea of the king coming on an unannounced visit with his giant retinue of, of retainers and knights and everything, it, that's just really, you know, I, just a cool thing. And I'm excited to see it immediately. The, my first watch through of 
the series, I don't think I realized the importance of John Aaron and his death. And yeah. like going back, obviously, it's like the the main crux of everything beginning. Right, because uh, that's why Robert comes, because he's coming to ask him to become a Hand of the King. Right. We, we, we learn quickly. Knowing that they, like once we find out that they were raised together and John Aaron was kind of the same thing, he was kind of what Ned is to Theon. Right. He's his ward. So yeah. having that, like knowing that and thinking of how everything ends up with Robert Baratheon and the war. And, and it really makes sense that Robert would appoint him as the Hand when you think about it, right? Like if he learned so much from this guy growing up, and now he's going to rule. He brings him back on to be his his you know right hand guy, which is what the hand is. And then it makes so much sense that he's going to go to Ned. So like everything here just perfectly lines up with what's happening in the story. Mm-hmm. Catelyn is is kind of thinking about the, what the antler buried in the throat of the direwolf right was meant also. Right. So she and was more worried about it than ever, all the Starks were. Oh yeah, to say. Ned's trying to discount it because he's he doesn't like to believe in superstition, although he's aware of it. So next up, we are introduced to Danny and her vicious brother Viserys. Uh, and yeah, she's 13 in the books, so keep that in mind for all the crazy stuff that's going on down with her. Um, definitely kind of squicky. Um, it's, it's you know, like I said, it's 13 was a different thing in medieval times, and uh, but definitely still young, and it's made it's made apparent that she is very young. Um, but this isn't a modern society with modern rule, you know, laws in 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 place. It was is a lot of you know child brides getting married off to form alliances and all this stuff like that's just the way things were and uh you know martin wanted to put that into his books obviously she he empowers danny you know like he doesn't just allow her to be the child bride and and so she she eventually like uh yeah. i mean she she goes through some stuff like she not saying has she a huge good... arc in this story and in, in right. this book and through future books for sure so seeing seeing like how what he did with kind of the idea of a child bride and seeing like where ultimately it's heading is also something to think about the thing that i love about viserys and i love to hate viserys but the thing that i love about viserys is this waking the dragon thing yeah where he's like constantly talking about his anger being yeah he sounds like he sounds like i mean this is like this is Joffrey type stuff to me. Yeah. Like they're cut from the same cloth. It's this entitled noble, noble who thinks that they're like scary or intimidating, but really is just a little shit. And yeah, the idea of like, you're going to wake the dragon. And then, uh, I mean, is your point, I, I finish your, finish your point. I don't want to make it for you. It just, just the fact that Viserys is, is playing with, with powers that he's not going to be able to ultimately control is, is, telling of kind of what George R. R. Martin's going to do throughout the series. Right. Well, I meant specifically the phrase wake the dragon and how that applies to what Danny actually does do. when he says, you're going to wake the dragon, you're going to wake the dragon. And then she does wake the dragon, you know, just actual dragons. So it's actually really <laughs> clever foreshadowing there. that We don't even realize um, she does have a dream. I don't think it's in this chapter, but she has a dream about, about waking the dragon, but it's actually a real dragon too. Mm-hmm. So it, it, dreams are also very important in these, in these books and they're very, prophetic you would think at some point everything that's on the page for a George in one of these one of these song of ice and fire books you can just assume that that is going to play a part in some way so, so yeah. everything's a prophecy every every dream is a prophecy every um every line that someone says that's like a little clever like might end up uh for example the stuff that goes on with how aria hates needles and she hates the needlework and then eventually yeah. john gives her the the sword and it's just like yeah. 
he was building to the to that moment where he could be like, "Isn't this funny?" or "Isn't this yeah. ironic?" Now he does also include false false like red herrings and false lines and stuff like that, and false mm-hmm. lore. People lie to one another and and make up things, and and, and some of that's to sort of uh, I think keep us from being able to figure it all out just by reading into all this stuff because otherwise mm-hmm. it would be obvious like okay well he's telling us this is this and this is going to happen he also keeps things very vague right so you don't know how it's going to be fulfilled yeah and it's part of the fun is is that kind of the mystery without it being like a mystery box yeah. type structure you know it's not like what's happening what's happening what's happening and then ultimately it's revealed and it's not quite as satisfying as you would want it to yeah. be it's really just like he's setting up these mysteries and if you pick it apart you might be able to find something like a string that'll lead you down a certain path, yeah. but it might also lead you down some dead end. So so the other thing I, I'm realizing that he does great with these prophecies, right, is they're often very ominous and bad <laughs> and foreboding, yet vague. So when something's vague, but clearly negative and clearly awful, like that, that fills you with a sense of dread and, and sort of it feels inescapable in a way as we start to see as, as more and more prophecies come true, we realize that if you're getting a bad omen and someone says something bad's going to happen, like something bad is going to happen. We might not know what it is, but or we know that something sort of like the thing that was just said is going to happen and it, it becomes really chilling in a lot of ways. I think that's one of the reasons why they work so well for him and, and maybe less well in, in the hands of other authors where I am definitely uh, will fully admit that I do not always find prophecies very interesting <laughs> in other in other works. Yeah, I mean, it's, you have to really buy into the world and the lore. Otherwise, it can really feel monotonous sometimes. So uh, that basically the end of that chapter is is her being prepared uh, by Illyrio's helpers for, for, for the wedding of Tukal Drogo. Next up, we we are in Eddard's point of view for the first time, and it's as King Robert is arriving with Jamie Lannister, Sander Clegane, um, Cersei Lannister, uh, the whole the whole crew. Um, <laughs> the whole I do squad. Like, I, I was noticing how he was actually really clever in how he introduced names. Um, Cersei is not called Cersei for a long time. She's referred to as the Queen, as the Lannister woman. Um, even Jamie Lannister is just called Lannister. I think the first time he's shown Kingslayer. Um, yeah, I don't even know if we get Kingslayer here yet. Um, I think that comes a little later. Um, so he really is smart about how he doles this out. And, and even so a lot of people find this stuff to be very overwhelming, but he is very careful about like, I'm not going to drop too many names on you. So you do get some weird situations where, um characters are just referring to each other as Lannister and stuff like that and I'm like why are you calling him Lannister like his name's Jamie or his name's T- Tyrion or whatever so this sort of stuff does kind of happen early on but I think it was him trying his best to keep the name overload a bit to a minimum and just remind you like this is a Lannister this is what you need to remember but yeah so the difference I mean the difference in Robert th- this is this is a man who is six foot six was a mountain of a man and has since just put on a giant belly and kind of gotten overweight, but he's still this huge, huge figure. Um, and we know that he shares this past history with with Ned. Uh, they embrace, and we see that he. We learn that he is a man of immense appetites, and he. We see that he's a bit of a lecher as he's you know talking about women in the South and trying to sort of entice Ned, who is very stoic. And uh, he immediately go, wants to go down to the crypts to see Lyanna's uh, tomb, which uh, Ned Ned is very thankful for. Now, what's really interesting is all of this stuff with the crypts. Uh, 
the first time I read it was very it was very like okay what is this really about is it just, it's just a setting to set up some backstory that only feels vaguely related to what's actually happening right now mm-hmm. but man is this stuff important in it, retrospect and knowing everything that we know from the show and we're gonna go ahead and spoil a huge huge spoiler if you haven't caught up I'm telling you don't listen <laughs> to this um, but yeah that Jon Snow is actually Lyanna and Rhaegar's child. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that really informs this conversation in a way that made me appreciate it in a whole new way. Well, and and I think it comes later, but like the the conversation with Catelyn as well, where she's oh, yeah. talking about the bastard Jon Snow and tell me who. And but yeah, when did you figure it out? Like when did you? When were you on board with the uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna? Like when do you think that you started to like? Was it because because for me honestly, it wasn't it, it wasn't until I started looking into things online that I yeah. really start to buy. Into I'm I'm not going to try and say that I yeah I I wasn't someone who was like deep into theory crafting. Um, so what happened to me was I finished the fourth book and I, I definitely had like thoughts in my head swirling going, who is, who is John's mother? Clearly this is some important thing. And then mm-hmm. I had different characters that had been giving to me throughout the stories as potential options. Maybe it's this person, maybe it's this person. Is it Ashara Dane or who is it? Clearly he's lying about it. It felt like something was being lied about and that there's some mystery there. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until after I finished, I think book four and I really got more into like, cause I read the first four books back to back to back to back really fast. I don't know how fast, but it was fast for me and for a lot of book. Um, and then that's when I started looking stuff up online. And then immediately you, you find the, you know, R plus L equals J uh, theory, which is like the first and most important theory of all Game of Thrones theories that has been confirmed by the show. I, I think that it's going to be confirmed in the, in the book. It's just like, they, how could it not? Yeah, no. It, yeah, no, I think it absolutely will. That That's something that, when they talk about like the the showrunners running off of Martin's notes, like this is the kind of stuff they're talking about. Like those big things are definitely the same. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, we're not going to talk about the show too much. Got to fight <laughs> fight the urge. Ned is talking to Rob, and Robert is saying, "I, you know, you should have buried her somewhere with this in the sun. She doesn't deserve to be in a place like this." And Ned saying, "No, she. This is her place. You know, she belongs here. She's a Stark." I man that t- it takes on a new dimension when you realize that Ned knows that she truly loved Rhaegar and died giving birth to Rhaegar's son not Robert. So mm-hmm. that Robert's love feels much more like this unrequited crush he had on Lyanna. Well they were betrothed so it was like this unrequited like he was just like like she clearly didn't necessarily want it, and he was like just uh, couldn't be happier about it, and like fully loved her, but in like a possessive way. But but Ned knows that even betrothal or not, her heart wasn't with Robert; it mm-hmm. was with Rhaegar truly. So he's sort of um, he's like he's like kind of like pump the brakes, man, like step back, like she wasn't really about that without saying it. Well, and no, so he doesn't he just... say it, but he also loves his fr- that's his best friend. So he also loves his friend and doesn't want to hurt right. him. So he's kind doesn't of hurt willing him. he's willing to let him believe whatever he believes. Right. Um this is where we get the promise me Ned, room full of blood and roses. They talk about Howland Reed is mentioned here which, you know, he was he's someone else who knows the truth. Um we hear about this is the first time we hear about the battle at the Trident um and Rhaegar being slain. I want to see that in a show. If we do yeah. get any sort of like spinoff, like I would love to see the build up to the battle. Although I would also love to see just like like 
old school, like old old Valeria stuff or something crazy like that? Well, I think we're going to see the latter. Uh, Martin has said that he believes that all of this stuff, all of this Robert's Rebellion stuff is covered thoroughly by the show. Or it's not by the show, by the books um, in sort of bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And he would rather some mystery be lent to it by the different accounts we get through different characters rather than go back and give sort of a definitive version of what actually happened. I, I think that's the best way to do it as well. But I would just love, I just, the battle would be amazing. It'd be cool to see. You can, like, there's a lot of really cool fan art out there. People have done mm-hmm. um, the kind of showing this particular scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then also Robert's hatred for Rhaegar and um, how he wants to kill every last Targaryen and how he thinks that this man raped her over and over and over again and it was this, you know, and, and Ned knows the truth, knows that that isn't what happened, and yet has to bite his tongue because he also knows that this would mean the death of John if he were to reveal it. Yeah. Out of curiosity, do you think that John Aaron knew? No, I, I really don't. I think I think the only other person who might know is, is Reed. Helen Reed. Yeah. Other than Ned. I think it's Helen Reed and Ned Sark are the only two who knows. Um, and then... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's some theories about, like, who is that Septon who married them? Because, like, in the show, there was an image of a Septon. But I don't know how much of that is going to be true in the books. Um, it's it's tough to say. We also learn... This is where Robert officially offers him Hand of the King. Uh, Ned is not too excited about it, but he also isn't totally surprised. He he is kind of believed that this is going to happen. This is also the first time we hear talk of Sansa and Joffrey being betrothed to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, although Ned is pumping the brakes on that and saying it could, needs to wait a few years. She's only 11. Um, I love Ned's and, like, he's just always so it, everything. In, and I think that this is leading to obviously ultimately what becomes of, of Ned, but like everything that he says is the correct choice for the most yeah. part. There's like, I think there's like one major thing that he gets wrong later. Well, he, he also is like, it's a lot of stuff of him going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But honor says, Mm-hmm. Honor says that I need to do it this way. And so to me, this is a very like old world, uh, old fantasy thing. That, and Ned is cut from that cloth of the sort of fantasy hero that we see we see do this sort of thing. And that's why I think symbolically for the series itself that Ned winds up losing his head over this and over his honor shows very strongly how different a series this is going to be. Because it sets the tone and it says your classic fantasy hero who does everything honorably doesn't win out in the end and sh- demonstrate that honor is the only true path. Instead, he loses his head over it. I think that that was is a major selling point for a lot of people in this is just that like you can't predict what's going to happen. And like if you do love a character, it may not go their way, which is kind of leads us to we're coming up to the final season. So it's like. Do people think that this is actually going to end as happily as they want it to, or right. how is it going to go down? We'll, we'll, well find out and, soon. And, and there's also a lot to be said for how the series ends and how the book ends may be mm-hmm. very different. Oh, um, I, I, I think it's going to be much different at this point. Yeah, I do too. We can talk about that in future episodes. I think that's really interesting stuff, but uh, I don't know we have time here. <laughs> so John is next up. Uh, John's first chapter POV, where it says POV. He's drinking wine. He's getting a little bit tipsy. He's kind of, uh, it's funny because he professes so much that he's not actually upset about not being at the main table with everybody else. Yet we can read between the lines that he actually is very upset about it. Um, he's sitting, uh, we also see his, uh, his dire wolf is already incredibly bonded to him. Um, obedient, uh, eating table scraps, 
uh, fighting other dogs, fight, scaring off other dogs just by looking at them and not barking because uh, he's silent. Joffrey is introduced. Well, we see John look at Joffrey the first time and immediately kind of dislikes him because he he looks so bored by everything. I do. I, I always found it interesting that that uh, Joffrey in the book is to me, he's described as this tall, almost model esque looking boy. Right, like he's so dashing and 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 handsome, and uh, so that always was kind of at odds with what we end up getting in the show, which we can mm-hmm. talk about more later. But well, Rob, I like him and Rob almost fight at one point, and Rob, he's like taller than Rob. Yeah, because he's this big tall. Yeah, he's this big. T- now I don't know how like strong he is, but he's to me. I always pictured him as this kind of like scrawny, almost looks like a male model boy, right? Um, like teenager. And and that that was always my imagining of him, which is, um, you know, what I mean, there's a few characters like that where it's like my imagining of them is so strong. Uh, Ned Stark, for example, is is much younger in this in these books than uh, than we get on the show. But we can talk about those differences on the show episode. So for John here, um, he's also unimpressed by the king, which I love this detail. So he sees the king and he's heard all these stories about Robert Baratheon who killed Rhaegar and this giant of a man and all this stuff. And he looks at the guy and he's like, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not really impressed. This is just like a, a guy who's, who's sweating and breathing heavy from walking up to the dais. He's not that impressive. And I love that it shows Ned when he looks at Robert, he sees the man that Robert used to be. Mm-hmm. He sees, and many people do, they see that they know the history, but John has got that, that kind of like the eye of youth and that he doesn't see that he sees the man that Robert is now, mm-hmm. and you could argue that Ned's inability to see who Robert has become and be kind of he's sort of blinded to that, blind to that, um, is also what leads to a lot of this stuff because this is not the version of Robert that he knew as, as a young man. I think Catelyn out and out says that at one point too. He says like, "I know Robert," and she's like, "You knew Robert. You knew right. who he was before." Yeah, and this is the start of that. This is the first I think we see a character really thinking that, like, mm-hmm. hey, th- I'm this. Who's this guy? I'm not impressed. Uh, yeah, well, really well done. Benjen shows up. Benjen shows up. Yeah, Uncle Ben uh, comes talking about the Night's Watch for the first time. This both is... of them notice that Ned is 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 behaving kind of oddly, and so but I love that both him and Benjen are able to sort of read between the lines that something else is going on here that has made Ned uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, which also demonstrates how close Benjen is to Ned, right? He can mm-hmm. still pick up on this sort of thing. I love thinking about just for some reason, whenever I think about these families, I think about them as holes. Like when when Eddard had his brother Brandon and his father and Benjen and they were all together just like the Starks are right now. And then you think about where the Starks are now and if, if everything had gone as it was at the beginning of the show, just thinking about like where everybody would would be and maybe Rob would be taking over, but everybody just has, it it just goes off the rails so quickly. Yeah. Well, and so there's a really telling moment here where John says, uh, I, you know, uh, I think Dimension says like, come to me after you fathered a few bastards yourself. Mm -hmm. And very angrily, John says, I would never father a bastard. And the fact that he is one, uh, I mean, that demonstrates that despite his how he may outwardly act, he has a lot of sort of self-loathing over this. And I think that's the only reason he goes to the wall is because he in some ways believes I belong there. Now, when the fullness of time with the fullness of full spoilers, (laughs) he is literally a Targaryen Stark. You know what I mean? He is not a bastard. He is, you know 
not only a Stark, but a Targaryen and, and, you know, as, as has the Royal bloodline as anybody there. Um, now what all that means, I think it's really, you know, fascinating to talk about because, you know, a lot of these books deal in sort of royal bloodlines and then also like might makes right. Cause that's the whole thing with Robert is basically he took the throne and that's the only reason it's, he's a King now is cause he mm-hmm. took it. Well, um, what I, yeah. you got to think about the character that John would have been had he not been a bastard growing up, had he not had all of, you know, had he not been treated the way he was, if he was this Royal bloodline star, it was formative, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, he's the character he is in the story because of that. Yeah. Um, and that makes him, it makes it so much more satisfying when we do get that reveal fully. Right. So next up, uh, John is uh, sort of embarrassed by what he says and he runs outside and he uh, meets Tyrion Lannister who does a backflip somersault, I don't know, 360 nosedive onto his hands, springs up onto his feet. He does something <laughs> wild in the book um, that he definitely uh, doesn't do in the show and, and, and doesn't do anywhere really later in these books. Um, to me, this is like a this is a weird f- uh, leftover sort of uh, moment from like an early version of this character that mm-hmm. I'm kind of amazed is still in this novel because it really doesn't fit the character in my opinion. Yeah, he's like more of like a jester almost. Yeah, he's got that like tumbler sort of you know he's he's actually super flexible and can spring around and all this stuff and we don't see that anywhere else in the books. He's not like that. So it, it is almost, yeah, I, I kind of wish this had been edited out. Regardless, it's in there. Uh, we meet Tyrion Lannister, who has heterochromia. Uh, he has sort of shaggy hair, one eye of each color. Um, he's got a sharp tongue, and he has his first conversation with Jon Snow. Arguably, to me, one of the most uh, important lines or formative lines for Jon's character talks about the difference between being a dwarf and a and a bastard and yeah. how never forget bast- what you are for the world will not make it your strength yeah exactly you know, that whole thing but i also like the part where he says that um a dwarf is always a bastard and a bastard isn't necessarily always a dwarf right it's kind of a moment for john to like look at in perspective and think about like where he is in comparison to somebody like Tyrion. even yeah they, these two definitely have this sort of immediate kindred spirit situation in in we see that it's their their family names are keeping them apart um but we also see that these two characters have a lot in common and that clearly John has a lot he could learn from Tyrion. So next we got Catelyn in bed with Ned. Uh, we we get some conversation about uh, how Ned really wants to refuse Robert. And it's funny because Catelyn is actually the one who pushes him into agreeing with this because she says she doesn't know how he's going to react. And she's thinking about the symbolism of the broken antler. And thinking, oh, you can't refuse him because if you refuse him, he's going to his wrath is going to you know bring down our house. And uh, we obviously might interpret it saying that she's misreading these symbols and she pushes him to do the very thing that is what causes this all to go down. Um, but it's also like, like I said again, it's this inescapableness to these prophecies too. Like nothing she could have done here would have changed it. Maybe I don't know. Or she was always going to do what she was always going to do. Exactly. And, and the thing is, like, she she may have been interpreting it incorrectly, but, like, the thing to do in the situation from from Rob's perspective, Robert Baratheon's perspective, is to go get his best friend to be the Hand of the King. Yeah. And, like, ultimately, that seems like the best idea here, not knowing... Do you, think, do you think if Ned had said, no, I'm not going to do it, do you think Robert would have respected that? Yes. 
Really? See, I was going to say no. <laughs> I think he would have twisted his arm until he until he agreed to do it. In some you fashion. think so? Like how? But how? What is he going to do? To I don't. I feel like this version of Robert is not somebody who takes no for an answer. What? Are you, what is he going to do? He's going to kill one of his kids? Like? Well, because he no 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 he he knows that Ned's an honorable man, so I think he would have appealed to his honor into into a way into which Ned would have eventually had okay, to do, agreed that, to do it. That I okay I, I could see that happening, but what I'm saying is if Ned was like no way no way in hell you have to kill me. Like he, Robert's not gonna do no. anything. Like he's not. Yeah, gonna... but Ned would never do that either. That that would be a violation of Ned's character ultimately. So yeah, I I just don't. If Ned really just tried to say like I really don't want to do this, Robert, don't make me. I think Robert's response is I'm making you. Yeah. <laughs> so we also hear about this letter that is found, the secret letter left uh, for Maester Lewin, who comes in. It's for Catelyn Stark. is written in a coded language. It's from her sister. And basically says that her sister believes that John Aaron was murdered by the Lannisters, specifically Cersei, um, which is a huge bombshell, and they have no proof of anything. And yet it's... it affects everybody, everything that goes from on from here on out, right? Um, and we know later, of course, that that's not true. That uh, it's Joffrey. No, uh, it's it's um, it's Catelyn. It's Catelyn. I'm sorry. Oh, you're saying Liza. It's... It's Liza. Liza Aaron, yeah. Who actually killed John. What I was John trying Aaron. to say is is the person who sent the assassin was Joffrey later. Yes, later. Yeah. Later, later. But I mean for this whole thing, like John Aaron's death that is that is pinned on the Lannisters at this point yes. is actually Lysa. Well, well Liza and, Liza was doing it at the behest of someone else. Uh Littlefinger, a little bit, right? right? It's it's sort of uh We think Littlefinger and her plotting. Right. Um I think it's unclear. I I I'd, I'd, I'd love to reread those chapters, but I think it's unclear whether or not it was her idea or Littlefinger's idea or what. Um but in the show it's do, pretty I, definitive that that it was him but but like you said i don't remember the, the chapter specifically enough in the books to say if it was like definitive it was Littlefinger. finger like he was definitely there plotting with her though right so you would think he had a hand in it yeah honestly god i wish i remember that part better it's some combination of lysa and Littlefinger. i'm just not sure where who who had the stronger like whose idea it was who was more behind it and who just kind of went along with it yeah i can't remember specifically yeah but the blame but, falls um, on cersei and the lannisters yeah, they're putting it on the Lannisters to 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 drive a wedge between the Starks and the Lannisters. So we we you know we don't even know it, but we're being manipulated into setting up this conflict between these two houses, right? These two houses are being set at odds with each other. And and it's funny because we see the Lannisters as the villains, as the readers early yep. on, and they are in many ways. <laughs> they're definitely despicable people, but they're not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, it's not their fault. They're not guilty of yeah. this. Although you know, it's funny because the way. Um, Cersei talks about it later, I think is kind of sort of sounds like very incriminating. Um, so, but is she just saying like, they're going to blame us for this. So we need to, we need to not, not let it happen. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do wonder if, if Martin had it all figured out at this point, or if he actually didn't know who was responsible for John Aaron's death in this first book or not. Um, I like to think that he did, but it's possible that he didn't actually know until until a later novel. We also, this is the first time we hear about the Lady of Dane, and we hear about the history of uh, how Catelyn never welcomed John into the family, which is really, I always thought so harsh, but also like I can kind of understand it. And she says like she would have been fine with it if he hadn't brought John home and made him like, and made her have to raise him as a child. Yeah, I have to admit my first read through, I didn't like Catelyn because of the way she treated John, but like I do yeah. understand it in hindsight a little more. But it's just yeah. like she's I think it's because we like I think you naturally are pulled to John because he's such an underdog 
and like he yeah. has all this stuff that isn't going for him so like to yeah. just to see someone else treat him that way especially someone who is so nice to everyone else right and man it just knowing that that ned sees all of this happening and and being unwilling to say anything because he has to protect the secret and yet it's sort of driving this wedge between him and his wife and this lingering thing that's just been going on for years and i always feel and like i I don't know if this is like a really uninspired thing but like john i just loved john so much that like everything that happens i'm thinking in terms of john and it's just like he like time and time again it just doesn't like i think even ned says something about like i'll tell you something like next time i see you or something like that when they part ways, which isn't even hasn't yeah. even happened yet in our read, I don't think. No, no, it, it doesn't happen. In the oh, book that's at a show. Only thing? A show okay, so then redact that. Yeah. But, but just in terms of like the <laughs> things that happened to John, where he would seemingly never know his heritage if it wasn't for things that are going to happen later. Yeah, uh, this is also where they agreed that John's going to go to the wall. Which, yeah, that is a big decision, I think, um, for Ned to make here, knowing John's true identity. But I, I think in his defense, he he doesn't foresee any version of life playing out and where John is able to like proudly again, say that he's a Targaryen. Like in his mind, John will always have to live his entire life thinking he's a bastard. And and that's the only way he's going to survive. And you said before, like Ned doesn't necessarily buy into some of the the more like spiritual, like magical things that are going to be going on. So he's just, he's just fulfilling his promise to Lyanna. Lyanna. Yeah. All right. So next up, we meet Arya. Uh, we've met her a little bit, but this is our first real introduction to her. Her point of view. We see her failing at stitching. We know we hear she meets. She hates needlework. Sets up her sort of contentious, semi-contentious relationship with Sansa, and we see her wolf pup named Nymeria, which I just have to say is also the name of my dog. So when I encountered that in the book, it was it was exciting for me. <laughs> um, well, I mean, what about Tyrion too? Yeah, my other dog is named Tyrion. My my corgi um yeah i mean absolutely um and then i had another dog named aria so uh i i'm all over the stark the starks and and, and this book in general with my dogs Uh, i think we should address this in the next episode but there's you know there's so many houses and and in this book specifically it seems like the starks are really important but i want to know like kind of what 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 house you identify with and i want to talk to you about like what i identify with and who i like even if i don't identify with them uh but we'll save that for our next episode so I think that'll be cool. I mean, we, we did that with Harry Potter, right? Where we talked about our houses. So I think uh, which which house uh, we for, for Game of Thrones, I think absolutely we should do that. Uh, so we also then see John and Arya being very close to one another. We see a sort of a sparring matches going on and it ends in Joffrey taunting Rob, uh, asking for live steel, but it's forbidden by the by uh, by the, the, the master at arms. And then he sort of just is able to boast and leave. The one really interesting thing that happens here is the hound comes up and basically says like, ah, let him have live steel. You know, what are you, why are you saying no to the prince? And I remember when I first read it, I was like, okay, so, so Sander Clegging is just really doing everything Joffrey wants. But my, my new perspective of this is, is the hound going, yeah, let's see, let's see Joffrey actually fight. Cause you know, the hound can tell yeah. that Joffrey would lose to yeah. Rob with live steel so it's almost like he's setting it up to for joffrey to either get seriously injured or killed he's like yeah let's let it play out (laughs) because to me the hound is like an ultimate he's an ultimate nihilist at this point like he just doesn't care about anything or anyone and in fact I, i think he hates joffrey but he just doesn't care either at the same time 
it's almost know? like because his character we're going to talk about much more later at some point but he, his character is like what is his honor like where is he motivated by and we know it's ultimately his brother but he has no honor and his his motiv- sole motivation and maybe is his brother yeah that we learn but later. but what i mean and then there's like also maybe something with sansa later yeah later on yeah yeah so the next chapter is bran and he, um, he, we, we learn about him loving to climb. Now, my main observation from this that I thought was cool is that um, this foreshadows his his coming sight because he talks about how he loves to be able to see everything from a different perspective and how he loves to be invisible and be able to uh, look at look down on everything and it makes it feel like he's in his own secret world. And I just love how this foreshadows what happens to him and his future sight that he gets, his his green seeing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, that's so brilliantly done because it just seems like a cool observation of a kid who climbs, but it's actually foreshadowing his character and why he is so taken by the idea of getting this this future sight mm-hmm. or green sight. I love the the story that we get of Ned punishing him and making him wait near the weirwood, and then he climbs it and he's like finds him like sleeping up in the tree. Yeah. Even when he was told not to climb, love that story. And yeah, I I yeah. love brand chapters. Just I, I just it's it's one of my favorite point of views. So this is obviously the Im- infamous scene of him hearing voices, following the voices, winding up at the tower, and seeing Jamie and Cersei having sex. And uh, he's he's found out by Jamie, catches him, actually kind of rescues him from falling, and then throws him out the window. Uh, and with the the line, the things I do for love. Um, I also love how Summer, who is not named Summer yet, actually is an unnamed, uh, Bran's unnamed wolf, is howling the whole time he's climbing and seems to know that something's going to happen. And then we, you know, we know that he like loses his shit and is howling like crazy after at Bran falls. Their connection and, is awesome. Man, always. All of these dire wolves connections to their, to their, to their people is so strong, but it's particularly this one. And yeah, I mean, it just really, it's really, it's really cool stuff. So the first Tyrion chapter is actually, uh, I had forgotten what the first Tyrion chapter was. And it's him. He is actually the first point of view chapter we get reacting to the news of Bran falling. Um, And we see him go and meet with his siblings. And, uh, oh, we also see him slapping Joffrey, (laughs) which I love. We see him slap Joffrey twice. Um, It stands up, kind of stands up to Sandor uh, because he knows that he's not going to do anything to. um, And then... Clegane basically saying like the prince will remember that and he's like well make sure that he does um so I love we I immediately just love Tyrion even more here and then yeah the, what really seals it is he goes and he meets his twins and we see him being incredibly clever and and figuring out that they're behind this and just from a glance knows that um he's fishing you know what I mean when he puts out the 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 news that Bran uh, is is projected to perhaps survive and then that little glance they have tells him everything he needs to know about about them being behind it um and man I just love Tyrion and how smart he is well yeah Tyrion's a genius and and it's always fun to be in the perspective of a genius yeah. and just like see them scheming and what they're doing uh all right we're gonna get through these rapidly because we're we're going super long so john is on his way to uh the room to say goodbye to bran and this is where we see cat being just like uber bitch to him in my opinion and and we know that she's grieving and she's and she we see her change her ways later but for right now she just is so cold to him does not want to let him in there to talk to brands is like why are you and then and then of course the ending line of it should have been you is just so harsh right well, and this is why I didn't like her character for the yeah, first. Yeah, I can see it. I, I just didn't like her. I and like I, I held a grudge. I'll admit. 
for a long time. <laughs> right. Uh, we see Rob and John embrace. So we know that Rob and John are, are, are friendly. Um, and then uh, Rob says to him, the next time I see you, you'll be all in black. And of course, we know that they will actually never see each other again after this moment. And I love their relationship too. Like they're like yeah. not brothers, but clearly close, close as brothers. And yeah, um, they're and they're the two older brothers looking out for the rest of the the Starks. And like 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 I keep talking about this image of of a Stark family that it didn't go through all these hardships just always sticks out in my mind. And I just grieve for the Rob and John relationship that could have been like Ned and 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 Robert, right. Yeah, no, I, I totally see that. Uh, and then we also see his relationship to Arya. He gives her Needle and gives her the first lesson, stick them with the pointy end. And we know that Needle in many ways is one of the things that not only causes a bunch of trouble um, with her seeking to do swordplay uh, in the in the, what comes later, but then also how she ends up surviving and and sets her down a path that she ultimately you know goes down i think it all starts with the gift of needle right like the gift of a weapon to her all right next up with danny's back in danny's chapter um she this is the wedding right and she she has the dream um and then we learn that her and this called drogo can barely communicate to each other they can barely speak to each other because they speak different languages um this wedding is described as such a brutal way there's people dying everywhere there's people just like Rutting. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know how else to describe it. Like animals. Um, I think, yeah, I think rightfully people have looked at this stuff and, and found it to be a bit problematic. Um, I, I can see why, where people are coming from with, with that criticism. I really admire Martin for taking risks and for dealing with sort of like live grenade type subject matter in many ways. And and being able to pull it off in a way that I think is that that is pretty good, and 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 um, I don't know. I just I he's somebody I look up to in that I think he does things a lot in general in the right way. Um, now I do think there's a lot of there's a lot of conflation with the show that happens when people talk about the books. I was about to say that actually. I I had a moment of this. Yeah, there's a ton of that, and I think um, this this the way this chapter ends is a big example. So this chapter ends with Khal Drogo and Danny consummating their uh, their marriage. She's terrified of him. Um, he gives her this horse that she loves, and that's sort of like the first real sign of like affection between them because she really loves this horse that he that he gives her. And then they have this actually really drawn out thing where he's sort of like combing her hair, and he she helps him undo his braid. It's actually semi-romantic, I would say. Like, there's still a lot of troubling things going on. She's still super young. And she's a child. She's being forced into this relationship, obviously. She's still being forced into it. But there's this whole thing where he keeps... He no is one of the only words he understands. And he keeps asking her, or, you know, no gets said several times. And then finally, he he asks her a, a clear question. No? Like, if, do you want me to stop and what he was doing? And she... She doesn't, you know what I mean? She says, go, basically, go ahead. And she gives him the go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so she provides a level of consent. Now, you can totally debate on whether or not consent is even possible in this situation. Right. However, this is a stark change from what we see later in the show. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things that I know a lot of book readers push back against. And then it's also one of the things that I get frustrated with because a lot of people who have only seen the show think that this is exactly how it goes down in the book. And it's really yeah. not. It really is and quite I didn't, different. And I didn't remember this this chapter ending like this either. I, I was 
I was genuinely like, wow, like that, that clearly is a lot more, um, consenting, consenting as well as like, there's clearly like, like a, like a romantic element. It's like sensual and like, yeah, it's it's clear that it's not like the rape basically that we see in the show. It really is. It's it's quite different. And, um, I'm going to be really interested to see like what kind of stuff we can dig up about that and why it was changed. If there's anything about it, like why it was changed to be the way it was in the show. Next up, we get Eddard. We're back in with, with the Starks, um, and they he's taken out on a ride with Robert. We learned that N- Robert is aware of Danny being there and having this wedding. He it's a threat. Ned doesn't want uh, doesn't want the death of children on his hands and doesn't think Robert should order her death. We learned that he never really forgave them for what happened with the death of the Targaryens. That was a sticking point and one of the reasons why he returned to the North and hasn't really seen Robert in many years is is basically that Gregor Clegane killed these two Targaryen children um, and, and that he just never forgave him for that. And I, this is kind of what I asked you earlier about if you thought Jon Arryn knew anything just because he was also pushing back against Robert's like rage against the Targaryens. I think it was more just like, don't you don't need to be killing children <laughs> um i think it was more just that i think john aaron was a good we don't ever see this character because he's dead at the start of it but i think he was a good man and i think that's mm-hmm. the implication we get from him all right so next up we're uh, uh Tyrion on the way to the wall with john we see them sort of bonding again i love this introduction Tyrion's reading about the dragons he talks about having dreams as a dragons which i guess like i wanted to talk about in this episode but i think we need to push it for the next one but i really want to talk about the Tyrion as a tar- as a secret targaryen theory and we can talk about that in the next episode um what we do get is a lot of discussions about the different dragons and i love thinking about balerion being so large that he could swallow a mammoth whole which uh if you think about the gullet required for that that's a big fucking dragon that's like a that's like a godzilla dragon almost <laughs> yeah well you're talking about the uh the fan art and i've seen fan art of of what people like envision how Imagine. big he would have been and like you yeah. have to see the little tiny uh Aegon on top which makes me hope that um i hope we're gonna see an, just even bigger dragons next for this final season just bigger and bigger they've got to be bigger and better uh, we see Wolf tackle Tyrion and jump on top top of him ghost. and like, uh, sorry, what did I say? Wolf? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ghost the dire wolf um, is the one who who jumps on him and uh, and it's cool too because it's like Tyrion is like almost making a threatening like he's going just to touch John but it's not actually threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, we just see how protective um, this wolf is, which sets up which is what is about to happen. Um, so so much of this stuff is brilliantly done from a storytelling point of view. It's interesting to hear them ta- say that, you know, this this conversation basically ends with them both talking about how dragons no longer exist. Um, and if you we know for a fact confirmed by the show that John is a, that John himself is a dragon. And then there is the potential that maybe Tyrion is also a dragon. And I so think, the idea of them talking to each other about how dragons no longer exist is yeah. ah, it's just so good. I mean, the idea of of the three like massive characters being dragon, it's, it's just all crazy. All right, next up we are with Catelyn. Um, she has to make some new appointments. She's furious with the idea of having to make new appointments. And we see Rob step up and say, I'll do it. Takes the mantle. We see him sort of being a leader. Because Catelyn's still in mourning from... She's still like, in mourning. She, Bran's still out. He's down for the count. Yep. A fire breaks out. Rob leaves. Everybody leaves. Catelyn is alone with, with Bran. And it's really interesting that she has been like... She's been not about these dire wolves she wants she's there they make too much noise shut them up shut the window i don't want to hear them you know all this stuff at one point she says kill him i think yeah i don't care if you have to kill him just shut him up yeah um 
and then the man comes who's been hired to kill Bran. Um, you know, you know, you ain't supposed to be here or whatever he says. And uh, she gets cut up and and um, fighting, struggling with him to to save her to save Bran. And then uh, yeah, with the direwolf comes in and tears out the guy's throat, which is the first like awesome thing we've seen a, a wolf do. And we're so like yes, and again setting up how protective these wolves are. And I love that from um, this point on, you know, we, we see in the later chapter, she's she's all about them direwolves now. <laughs> and Summer, not named Summer yet, but Summer like licks the blood off her hand, showing that like he's gentle towards her. And then he like lays down on the bed next to Bran protecting yeah. him. And it's just all. Awesome. Oh, and that's in the same chapter. Yeah. So she wakes up. She talks about what's happened and she's a whole, she's like a new person when she wakes up. She's, she's, she's moved past her grieving. She says, I, there's nothing else I can do for Bran. And then she says, I need to be the one who tells tells uh ned what happened that that the, you know they're trying to kill bran she understands that if they're trying to kill bran it's because he knows something and specifically something about the lannisters this is her sort of intuiting that that the lannisters are the ones behind it uh and so she said she's going to take white harbor and go by sea and uh going to basically meet them at king's landing all right next up we're with sansa uh sansa who is uh Meeting with Arya, we hear talk about Micah the Butcher's boy and how these are mysterious bruises have keep appearing on Arya that she doesn't understand. We also meet Lady, who's described as the sweetest of all the wolves. Um, and we get the introduction of Sir Barristan Selmy and Renly Baratheon, uh, plus the headman, headsman Sir Illyn Payne, uh, which is a really fun scene that we don't really have time to get way into. Um, but we see her being clever, Sansa being clever and knowing who these people are. Um, next up, she gets to spend the day with Joffrey. She's so excited, and he's he's showing off to her. He's got this fancy castle forged sword that he calls Lion's Tooth, and he's taking her around, and they're getting drunk on wine, and it's very charming. And then all of a sudden, they hear noises in the forest. They go to investigate, and it's Arya and the butcher's boy, Micah, fighting with wooden swords. So Joffrey, being Joffrey, decides he's going to be cruel and he's going to challenge basically the butcher's boy to fight him, even though he has a sword and the butcher's boy only has the wooden stick. And Arya sees the danger in this and comes up and smacks Joffrey in the back of the head. They with fight a for a little bit with with with, with the stick. They the fight stick, for yeah. a little bit and then uh yeah, Nymeria comes in, jaws jaws a clamping, and uh clamps around Joffrey's arm. And then Arya picks up his sword, taunts him, and throws it into the river. And I immediately love Arya. Like, she becomes catapults to one of my favorite characters. <sighs> and I'm so excited. And then the oh shit of what is going to happen. And then, like, I will just say that I thought something bad was going to happen. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. And oh my gosh, uh, that leads into the next chapter, which we'll just dive right into. Eddard. Arya has been brought before the king. He's furious as he's going that she was brought to directly to the king and not to him. He comes in and they tell their two conflicting tales. Man, I hate Joffrey as he lies about everything that happens. I love that Renly cracks up laughing At about the, the when, when Arya tells the story about the sword getting thrown into the to the to the river and how he got beat bested by this like tiny you know nine year old girl or whatever she is. Um, and then Renly, Renly basically leaves because he knows that he can't be here laughing at this whole thing or it's going to be a problem. 
Well, there's a funny moment where where Robert is like, take him out of here. But he seems like he's choking. Like, take him out of here before he coughs himself to death or whatever. Yeah, because he, he wants says, to cover up the fact that he's he's laughing at his son. Yeah, he's like, surely you're not laughing right now, brother. Yeah, but it's also that thing where like he is his brother, so he knows he can get away with a certain amount. Right. Um. Yeah. Very very a cool scene honestly and it's happening in the midst of all this like craziness um and so then robert is basically saying like you got to find that dire wolf you got it you got to kill the dire wolf um because of cersei well no actually actually he's not he's like let's you punish your daughter i'll punish my my son let's just get this over with he doesn't want any part of this and then cersei says what about the wolf and he says yeah you're right like you know you can't have and it's it's really it's really uh sad but also kind of understandable he falls back on the like these are beasts anyway these this was going to happen at some point ned you're crazy for letting your kids have a dire wolf that's like if you know in our lives if somebody had a lion as their pet like yeah you can't have that like it's not not to say you should kill the lion but like you can't have that as a pet it's not going to work out and that's Mm kind of how it is for them like he's like you just can't do this so you need to do that. You need to kill. You need to kill. Uh, get rid of these these wolves. And um, they can't find Nymeria though. And Nymeria has gone has gone missing. They have search parties out, but they can't find her. So it looks like it's going to be averted. And then Cersei really gets to like insert herself into this scene and, and become what she is throughout the rest of this series by coming up and saying, "Oh, well, we do have we do have a wolf." And then man, her or basically ordering the death of Lady. And how just how unjust it is. And then, man, it's just as a dog lover, it's a brutal, it's a brutal series of events. I genuinely, I almost cried reading this. Yeah, me too. Borderline almost cried. I felt myself tearing up. Yeah. And especially the scene of Ned with her. And I mean, I'm, I'm getting joked up talking about it, (laughs) man. Yeah. Like the scene of Ned with her and how he says like, he's going to do it himself. Yeah. I mean, and so much respect to Ned for for being able to pull that out. Like, it's crazy to be able to actually do that. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, um, I just love how he's like, he's going to take four men, and we're going to take her body back to Winterfell to bury her. And like, this, he's like, the Lannister woman is never going to get this pelt. And like, it's I love all that. And and but it's like, it's it's just like such like a silver lining on such a terrible thing that's happening. But mm-hmm. you just love Ned so much for doing that. Yeah. And then yeah, and then we end on the reveal that uh, Sander Clegane comes back and he's ridden down Micah, the Butcher's boy, and we think that he's got Nymeria for a second. Yeah. And that was like the oh shit, like I'm going to throw this book moment where this can't possibly be I mean it's not though it's it's but it's Micah which is also you know terrible too and well and the craziest part is that he ran him down too yeah this is like Sanders showing like I don't I don't care anymore about anything he has no morality yeah it's not uh, even like clicking. he like he didn't just kill this kid he was just on his horseback just ran this kid down and sliced yeah. him from on horseback yeah and it's just like he just does whatever's ordered of him because he doesn't care um, you know, Sanders a fascinating character in his own way, but this is him at his lowest, I think, throughout through, from what we see. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, man, the Starks are down right now and and have been kicked. I you know, Bran falling is 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 a crazy moment that really kicks off this plot. But the death of Lady at you know basically Robert's orders and Ned, it, man, this is the thing that showed me like this isn't fantasy like I've ever read before. Yeah. This just doesn't happen in any other series. Um, now I know that there's been lots of grimdark written since, but this marks a turning point, in my opinion, in these kind of stories. And um, I'm no fantasy scholar; I haven't read everything that was contemporary. I can't definitively say there wasn't anybody else doing this at the time. And in fact, I think there were some others. But you know, he's the most famous for a reason, and I and I think it's because he does it really, really well. 
And uh, this is this is this is my introduction to this sort of thing. And uh, yeah, reading this is this is the kind of thing that made me go, oh, my God, the kinds of stories you can tell in genre fiction and in fantasy fiction. It just blew the doors off for me. And and yeah, the, those those doors are still blown off. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, that sounds like a great place to wrap it for this episode. I wish yeah. that we had 10 hours to, to cover, you know, yeah. this one part. Well, luckily, we got we got more episodes coming so we could talk even more about about this stuff and, and really get into it. Um, but yeah, I feel like these are going to be episodes where there's just like so much that we wish we could talk about. But mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did and, and, and listening to that. And, um, yeah, we really hope you, you come back next week when we talk about, uh, the first two episodes of the show and, and we give the background and the history behind how that show, that adaptation came to be. Yeah. I can't wait to jump into that. It's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. It's, it's the biggest show in the world. So I can't, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if you wanted to find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. Yeah, and we wanted to thank Amanda Van P for being a Patreon, uh, Patreon supporter. And if you wanted to find out how to become one yourself, you can look at patreon.com forward slash Ink to Film and see what sort of bonuses we're offering, like bonus episodes and all that good content. If you wanted to support the podcast in another way, you could leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we wanted to thank Ramsey's B for the use of our intro and outro music. And thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. All right, man. I think we should just leave it here. Uh, no stinger this week, but uh, we hope to see you back next time. Uh, until then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.